HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company, America's leading salt maker. Learn more at jacobsonsalt.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N salt.com. Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering the sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eat, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time. And producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, then I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes, it's out there and, and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. Subscribe to the Feed Feed wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show 
about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about farm labor, specifically the Farm Worker Modernization Act a piece of legislation that, if signed into law, will have profound implications for many people, for the many undocumented farm workers already in the U.S., for workers coming to the country in guest worker programs, and for farmers. So it passed in the House in December and is now in the Senate. And with me today is David Bacon, a California writer and photojournalist who has covered farm labor extensively and just published a deeply reported account of what some of these changes might mean. Um, it was published in the American Prospect in November. The article was called Close to Slavery or Legalization, The Farm Workers' Hard Choice. David, thanks for joining me. Hi, Lisa. Um, so where are you calling from? Uh, well, I live in California. I live in the um, Bay Area. Great. Um, and you've been covering uh, farm labor for quite some time, is that right? About 30 years, huh? Yeah, sure. so, so <laughs> yeah, that, I'll call that quite some time. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, so, so I want to get into this bill. So there, there are a few big distinct things um, this Farm Worker Modernization Act would do. So it would provide amnesty for a select group of undocumented farm workers. It would require farmers to use a system called E-Verify, to verify their workers are in the country legally, and it would update and expand the H-2A guest worker program. So that's just sort of a little background. Um, I think I want to talk a little bit about H-2A first, because you really got into this program in an in-depth way in your article, um, starting with the history of another program, the Bracero program. So. To start out, can you just talk a little bit about what exactly the Bracero program was? Sure. Um, the Bracero program was a program in which workers were um, recruited in Mexico and brought to the United States to work um, for the first two years. They also worked on the railroads, too, but after that, um, it was just in agriculture from 1942 to 1964. Um, so this was a program that um, was jointly administered by the U.S. and by the Mexican government, and it was um, really large. Um, at its peak uh, in 1956, about 450,000 people um, were brought to the United States as part of this program. Um, it became very controversial um, because of the way that those workers were treated, first of all. Mm. Um, people were uh, kind of treated as work animals. You know, there are some famous photographs, Lisa, of, of the workers as they were brought across the border and um, put into these big barns. And the first thing that happened to them is that they were sprayed with DDT oh because God. the idea was that if you were from Mexico, you were somehow dirty or pest-ridden or something, and you had to be cleaned. Um, and then they were kind of put into a lineup, and grower associations from different counties um, would uh, people from from those associations would then go down the line of workers and look at them and kind of pick out the ones that they thought would be um, the hard workers, the good workers, <laughs> and then they were um, brought to the farm where they were going to be working, and very often um, they were kept in labor camps behind barbed wire, um, separate from the towns and the 
um, farms and the other people around them. Right. Um, and then finally they were sent back to Mexico at the end of the season. So that was, um, people were very upset about, about that way that they were treated. There are some other things as well too, but I think that gives you kind of like the gist of it. Um, but the other reason why people were upset about it was because when the farm workers who were already living here in the United States, and remember those people were also <laughs> most of them immigrants themselves, right. too, um, when they would try to organize and go on strike, the um, growers would use the braceros to break the strike. In other words, uh. they would bring in braceros to work. And so people like Cesar Chavez and Bert and Ernst, um, campaigned against this program, and finally, in 1964, at the uh, 1965, at the height of the civil rights movement, they were able to get Congress to um, abolish the law, Public Law 78, that allowed the recruitment of braceros and the program. Um, well, we could say the program ended. The thing is, is it it actually didn't. But mm. um, really, that it, it, on the scale that it that people had seen it during the 40s and the 50s and early 60s, it ended. Right. And would you say that that um, the end of that program was mostly because of activism, worker activism, that brought to light those abuses? Yes, yeah. I would, very much so. Um, there, was a, there was a big lobby in favor of it all those years mm. um, because what it really did was it, it held down the wages of farm workers right. in the United States, and so those people who wanted those low wages, namely growers, um, you know, they liked the program. It was very popular, and so in order to end it, um, you had to have a lot of activism in order to do that. And again, remember, you know, this is the era of lunch counter citizens in the South and the big voter registration drives, and and in the Southwest and in, in California. Um, the civil rights movement also included the movement of, of Latinos, of Chicanos, of Mexican Americans. And so one of the main demands of that movement was the elimination of this program. So it was partly farm workers that wanted it, but also it was broader than that. You know, I think right. the Chicano civil rights movement wanted it to end. Yeah. Absolutely. So why is this history of the Bracero program um, relevant to what we're talking about today, the Farm Worker Modernization Act and specifically H-2A? Okay, well, first of all, just um, what gives you an idea of what the purpose of the bill is, is that the name of the bill, the bill is actually the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Mm. So, in other words, farm workforce means something slightly different right. from farm worker. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. So they're looking at, you know, kind of like what's going to supply the workforce? Mm -hmm. What are the rules of supplying the workforce? Right? So, um, and as you said in your introduction, um, quite accurately, this bill is a kind of a combination bill. Mm -hmm. So it combines a legalization program for undocumented farm workers mm -hmm. um, with the expansion of what's called the H-2A program. And the H-2A program looks a lot like what we were describing as the Bracero um, program mm -hmm. because it is a, a program under which workers are recruited in Mexico and, and some other countries too, and they are brought to the U.S., and people work for a determined period, and then they have to go home. 
and they are in quite a vulnerable situation um, when they are in the United States. Um, and so the program has become, you know, controversial in many of the ways that the um, Bracero program was. So, on the one hand, what the bill starts out by doing is that it sets up a program under which some farm workers could um, gain a green card, in other words, permanent resident status or the right to stay in the United States. Mm-hmm. And people with green cards can eventually even become citizens. So, um, and that is something that is very important to farm workers. It's very important to right. people in general who don't have papers, right? Because um, there's a lot of fear in rural areas in California and Arizona and other um, states where there are a lot of um, farm workers, because first of all, about half of all farm workers don't have papers, right. according to the Department of Labor. So, you know, we've had some pretty horrible situations as a result of that. You know, there was one in um, Delano in California um, where a family um, were dropping off their um, kids to school and they began being followed by a um, a border patrol van Mm. and they got scared and they began driving real fast and then crashed the van overturned and the family was killed. So, and that's just sort of like uh, gives you an idea of the level of fear Mm -hmm. that people have, you know, that people are worried that if you drop your kids off at school, that whether the kids will have any parents to come and pick them up, you know, in, in the afternoon and, and people sometimes have been living here for many, many, many years and would lose everything that they've worked for um, if they get deported. So um, it's, no, it's, not, it's not a small thing right. to have a bill that would offer people the chance to get legal status. And so, but what this bill does, it's a, it's a long and convoluted process. The, the bill is 223 pages long, mm-hmm. so it's... It's not a, a simple thing. Yeah. And what what you would have to do if you were a farm worker and you wanted and you didn't have papers and you wanted to get them, um, first of all, you would have to have worked um, in the United States in agriculture for at least 180 work days um, before that. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but you kind of have to remember that for farm workers, um, employment is very often kind of a hit or miss thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you might get a few weeks of work on picking strawberries and then you might not get work for a while and then you might get some work pruning grapes and then you might not get some work for a while. So, so in other words, 180 days might actually mean um, a lot more than, you know, you know, 40 hour a week is five hours, five days a week, right? Right. Um, So at any rate, now then, you'd have to pass a background check um, and law enforcement security check. Um, you know, that sounds kind of like common sense, too, and in a way it is. But um, we are now seeing, in terms of immigration enforcement in the U.S., that people are having their green cards, their legal residence status, taken away from them because of conviction on DUIs, for instance. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be straight up. I've, I've had a DUI. Right. And I'll bet you a lot of your listeners have, too. Yeah. So think about having your 
legal status taken away from you because you have a DUI. Anyway, um, so that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in order to um, qualify for this, you would have to work at least 100 work days a year for the next four years if you had already been working in agriculture here for 10 years. Um, and then if you had been working in agriculture for less than 10 years, you would have to work eight years um, in agriculture. Now, After you apply. After you apply, okay. exactly, exactly. So first of all, what this does is it, it binds people to agriculture, mm. right? And it, it's not saying, you know, you can go and get a job, you know, cleaning houses or, you know, as a janitor or... Uh, on a construction site, you have to work in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, and, and 100, again, 100 work days a year sounds doable, and it is undoubtedly doable for many people. Mm-hmm. But um, it is, it can also be a, um, a requirement that might be hard for some people to, to meet. So the net of all of this is that, um, we have about two two and a half million farm workers in the United States, and again, um, about half of those are people without papers. Mm-hmm. That that's a, a one and a quarter million people. Would it cover one and a quarter million people? Probably not. Right. Um, how many? It's hard to say, really. But it is a limited and a long term process here. But on you know on the other hand, if you don't have papers, you, you might say, well, okay, but you know it's better than nothing. Right. Well, that right. Which is what we have right now. Yeah, that <laughs> promise of any any kind of amnesty is sort of what is driving support for this on the side of farm worker groups. Right. It's just it's right. so hard to get that in any bill that even if That's it's right. not exactly what they want, it's it's just having a path for some people is better than nothing. Right. That's right. That's yeah. right. You know, that's the position of farm worker justice, and that's the position of the United Farm Workers Union. Um, but, you know, there are other farm worker organizations that are opposing the bill. Right. And one of the reasons why they are opposing it is because, uh, that, because of this problem of um, how convoluted the process is and how long it is. Another a pr- problem that farm worker groups have raised is that, you know, farm labor is probably the most dangerous occupation in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have, I used to have the statistics on it as a writer and I, I don't anymore, but, but um, for a long time, it's been certainly among the most dangerous. In other words, people get injured right. um, very often. Now this bill eliminates injured farm workers essentially what do you because mean? of the well, it the work requirements. Uh, if you are an injured worker and you cannot work, right? Then you are in you're, you're basically out out of it, right? So, um, you know, th- th- that's the reason why you know there's this division among farm worker advocacy groups of some um, advocates being for it and some advocates being against it, um, but then we come to what the trade-off is, really. Mm-hmm. And there are two trade-offs that are um, basically very, they're going to have a lot of, of impact. One of them is the 
um, implementation of what's called the E-Verify program. Right. Now, the E-Verify program is a database that's maintained by the Department of Homeland Security, and employers um, can check that database and determine, at least according to the database, if somebody whose name they run through the database or their you know, identification information um, has the right to work in the United States or not. Um, that sounds kind of simple, but it's not. Because, first of all, the database, um, which has been around for a long time, is full of flaws. Right. Um, and so people get um, identified as being not able to work in the United States when, in fact, people are. Um, and we have a lot, and it's based a lot on Social Security numbers, and there's a lot of confusion in that database. So for the first time in for any U.S. industry, the bill would make it mandatory for growers and labor contractors to use the E-Verify system. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to use the E-Verify system right now, today, um, remember, one and a quarter million people don't have legal status, right? Right. What would happen? I mean, massive labor shortage for farmers. That's right, and massive firing of farm workers. Right. When when the provision of U.S. immigration law that says the workers have to have legal status in order to work, when that gets applied with a vengeance, the first thing that happens is that workers get fired. Right. So for, again, you know, Many undocumented people have been living here with their families for a long time, and so you get fired and you lose your job. Um, that can be a pretty drastic blow um, to a family. Yeah. So that that's what the first thing that would happen is that you know you would have um, one and a quarter million people losing their jobs, mm-hmm. um, and then of course as you as you point out, massive labor shortage. Right. Right. Um, you know, um, what would growers do? Who would actually do the picking? Who would actually do the pruning and so forth? Right. So, um, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off. We need to take a quick break. <laughs> um, so hold that thought, and when we come back, let's talk about um, what will happen. Um, you know, if that E-Verify component is um, actually implemented, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company. Jacobson's flake and kosher sea salts have garnered worldwide favor for their beautiful presentation and pure taste. In addition to an extensive assortment of pure sea salts and infused sea salts, Jacobson Salt Company also produces a line of salty confections, honey, cocktail salts, seasonings, gift sets, and other pantry staples. Harvested from the cold, pristine waters of Neatarts Bay on the Oregon coast, Jacobson Salt Company is a favorite amongst professionals and home cooks alike. Founded in 2011, Jacobson Salt Company's mission is grounded in craftsmanship and community, maintaining the vision of providing the very best cooking ingredients, from hand-harvested sea salt to single-origin honey. More information on Jacobson Salt Company and their extensive line of products can be found at jacobsonsalt.com. 
All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I've been talking to David Bacon about the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Um, So, David, we were talking about the impact of E-Verify. So a lot of farm workers would lose their jobs, and farmers would potentially be facing a massive labor shortage, correct? Correct. Um, So... Go ahead. What the, bill, what, what the bill does is two things. One is um, it does have this legalization process. So presumably, if you were right. a farm worker and you got what's called the certified agricultural worker status, meaning that you would apply for legalization and you were in process there somewhere, um, you would be able to work. And so the grower wouldn't have to fire you. Um, so that's one thing that would kind of me- ameliorate this you know, prospective but, firing of so many people. Right, but the idea that those two things would happen simultaneously right away is, seems a little crazy, right? Doesn't it? <laughs> Doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, like, uh, it seems like that process of people applying for that would take a very long time, and, and like, in the meantime, it, it, there would be a lot of upheaval. Yes. Yeah. And, and so the other, really, the main um, impact it would have here is it would force growers to use the H-2A um, guest worker recruitment program. Mm. And in a way, I think that is the whole purpose, really, behind this bill, um, which is the expansion um, of this program. And again, this is not something that is new in our history. You know, you go back to the Bracero program and 1954, um, the U.S. deported a million people, and the same year it brought in 450,000 um, braceros. Mm. So the idea was to create the labor shortage by deporting people and then force growers to use the bracero program um, to bring in workers. And well, pretty much does the same thing. You know, it um, especially over time, because if you think about it, um, you know, the people who are qualifying for the legalization program, eventually they're going to get their green cards. Um, Maybe they're going to decide that working in construction is better paying Mm. than farm labor and might, you know, decide not to be farm workers anymore. Um, People also get old and they drop out of the workforce. Um, So over time, um, what happens is that the, um, that what exists right now, which is that growers are able to use an undocumented workforce of about one and a quarter million people, would, they would no longer really be able to do that. They would have to replace them right. with someone. And um, as the number of legal farm workers um, dries up more and more and more, they would have to use the H-2A program um, to replace them. And so, oh, well, no, that, that's not exactly true, really. They could do one other thing. Hmm. And that is, they could raise the wages for farm workers. Right. So if, they, if in, right now, the wages for farm workers are very close to the minimum wage, whatever state you want to look at. Um, and the H-2A program has a complicated process for determining what the wages for H-2A workers is, but it is very close to minimum wage. It's not, in other words, California, where I live, the minimum wage just went up to $12 an hour. I think our... It, the wage for H-2A workers in California is about 13. So it's very, very close, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if growers were to raise the wages for, to 
to $25 or $30 an hour, um, be, they would have more success right. at attracting a demand force. And, and you can kind of hear that and think, well, okay, yeah, that'll be the day, right? Um, but actually, um, I was an organizer for the United Farm Workers in the 1970s when the union was very strong in California. And we had union contracts where the wages started out at two and a half times the minimum wage. Hmm. So if that existed still in California today, two and a half times $12 an hour is uh, $30 an hour, right? Yeah. So we have any farm workers in California making oh, <laughs> a I, handful, maybe. Yeah. So, so that's, so what, what this law does is that instead of telling growers um, raise the wages and you can get a legal workforce and you can, and farm workers will, will make a, uh, a better living. It opens the door to this much larger scale recruitment of workers under this H-2A program, which essentially holds the wages at minimum wage. Mm. And, and that so, has a big impact. I'm sorry, go ahead. When, when you say, because you said, you know, you think the purpose of the bill really is to kind of push um, labor into the H-2A program. Um, and, and is that, so you're saying in terms of, like when you say you think that's why, why um, that's the purpose behind it, it's be, in order to hold wages down? Is that is that the purpose that you're talking about? Yes, yeah. essentially. Okay. It is. Um, because you, you can see even in certain elements of the bill which have to do with H-2A wages. Again, as I said, you know, there's a complicated process for determining state by state what the um, H-2A wage is. Mm -hmm. So the first thing this bill does is it freezes those wages at 2019 wages when otherwise they would be adjusted upwards with the rise of the minimum wage or the rise of the cost of living. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then it allows at a certain point the idea that you would kind of do away with the uh, minimum H-2A wage, period. So the whole idea really is to make the H-2A program what growers would call more flexible. Right. So it lowers, it lowers the cost of the H-2A program for growers who want to use it in a number of ways. Another one, for instance, is that right now, um, growers who want to bring in H-2A workers are required to furnish housing for mm -hmm. them, which obviously, you know, I mean, it's just common sense. How would you be able to bring in workers and not do that, right? Right. How would they find because, housing? Yeah, and then um, they have to leave. So, so, you know, right now the law says you have to furnish housing. Well, that's a big cost item for growers, or at least they complain about it that way. So what this does is it allows growers to tap into... Um, federal housing funds to build um, housing for H-2A workers. In other words, they get to use taxpayer money to build the housing rather than use their own money to do it. That That's a big cost saving. Mm. And then it also um, takes away some of the other restrictions that growers have been unhappy about. Um, for instance, the dairy industry like wants to have H-2A workers, but they don't like the idea of having to send the workers back every year and then bring them back um, for the following season. They right. say, you know, dairy work is year-round work. And so they want a year-round program. And 
Bill gives it to them. So, you know, hmm. in a, it, it has a number of um, provisions that are like that. And the, the, the one thing that would kind of how you want to put it, ameliorate that, that farm worker advocates would like to see is what's not there. And that is, it has no provision that guarantees farm workers the right to organize unions. Mm. So if the bill is going to basically be a low-wage bill, at the very least, it should protect the ability of workers to organize and to raise their wages. Um, That's a big problem, especially around H-2A workers, because the way the H-2A work program works is that um, you are brought here under a contract um, with a grower or a labor contractor, and if you get fired, you don't work fast enough, or you complain too much, or, perish forbid, you organize a union, or try to, um, and you get fired, you lose your visa, because your visa is tied to your employment. Right. And if you lose your visa, you have to leave. You become deportable. So that's a big, big vulnerability. And what farm worker advocates have called for over the years is to say, well, okay, if we're going to have H-2A workers, they should have the right to organize the way other farm workers do, although you could argue that other farm workers, it's pretty hard for them to organize unions too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bill does not contain protections that um, essentially would would make that possible. So it sort of creates a vulnerable workforce at the bottom of the wage scale, and that would have a long-term impact over many years for farm workers as a whole, because even if you were a farm worker who was a citizen here, or you you had a permanent residence visa, um, you would be impacted by the existence of this huge workforce whose wages were way down there at the at the bottom at yeah. minimum wage. In other words, if you tried to ask for something better, the, you know the grower that you're asking it from could tell you, um, well. I have this other workforce over here. I don't really need to raise your wages because I have this other alternative. Right. Well, and I, I want to ask you about raising wages. Um, but before I do that, just just to clarify, you know, you've mentioned this word um, vulnerable a couple times in relation to um, H-2A workers. And you talked a lot about how um, undocumented workers are vulnerable to enforcement, and but but H-2A workers in particular, other than wages, can I know you've reported a lot on what they might face as a workforce. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Just um, why a lot of groups think that the H-2A program is a is a bad deal for workers and puts them in a vulnerable position to begin with. Sure. Um, well, the example example that comes to mind to me is a man named Ernesto Silva who was an H-2A worker um, working on a blueberry farm up near the Canadian border in Washington State. And um, Ernesto Silva uh, began getting sick one day when he was out in the fields um, because it was very hot and there was a lot of smoke in the air from these big forest fires over in British Columbia. Mm. And um, he began um, fainting in the rows, and he asked the foreman whether he could go back to the barracks, and the foreman said no, 
And then he began, he was so sick, he went back to the barracks anyway. The foreman came and got him out and put him back to work in the rows. And he finally collapsed. And he was um, brought to uh, the local clinic and then down to the hospital in Seattle where he died. Mm. And the other workers, other H-2A workers at this farm um, were very upset about this, about his death. But also, they were upset about the conditions generally. They had a lot of complaints about the conditions there. And they decided that they would stop work. Seventy of them decided that they would stop work and um, demand to talk to the grower about what was about all of this. And the response was the both the grower and the, the recruiter who had recruited them in Mexico uh, came and they fired them, threw them off of the land out into the road, um, in front of the farm mm. and just said, you know, away with you. Um, and eventually those workers, they got in touch with the uh, Farm Workers Union, Washington State, and um, they got some help and they were able to eventually put a little tent encampment and live there while they were trying to straighten out what was going to happen to them. But the reality was is that without a, a job, they couldn't stay. Their visas were um, gone. And so they eventually had to go back to Mexico. So, you know, that sort of gives you an idea of what vulnerability means. You right. know, why was it that Ernesto Silva um, could not say no to the grower? What would it mean mm-hmm. for him to say, um, no, I want to stay in the bunker. I, I don't feel I can work. Right. Um, well, you lose your visa, you, you get fired, you lose your visa, right? Yeah. Um, when the other workers did what? Many workers in this country are, think that they have the right to do, which is to stop work and to demand to negotiate over their conditions. They were told, in fact, they were told in so many words by the employer there, there is no right to collective action for you H-2A workers here. Mm. Um, and the, the obvious truth of it was is that they were fired and had to go back to Mexico. So it was true. They didn't have that right. So... Those things make people make people vulnerable. It's not that people are vulnerable and therefore don't try to get something better. Yeah. Undocumented people organize unions too. I mean, the whole farm worker union, United Farm Workers, and the union up in in state. Yeah, most of the people who belong to it are. are people so obviously people fight for something better whether they have papers or not and so do h2a workers but but what happens is that the obstacles get put in front of people that make it harder and more risky um to do that and so a lot of the criticism is that in that we need a bill that makes it easier and pulls down those obstacles rather than um, making them even greater. Right. Absolutely. Um, so what do you think, um, I know you've, you've been following the issue. Um, what do you think is going to happen with this bill? Do you think it'll really is a chance of becoming law? I think there is a chance of it. Um, Mm -hmm. it has some farm worker advocates who want it to happen. Um, you have some liberal Democrats who want it to happen and you have, um, some Republicans. This bill was sponsored on the one hand by Zoe Lofgren, who's a liberal Democrat from Silicon Valley, and Dan Newhouse, who is a very conservative 
um, Republican from Washington State who whose campaigns are paid for by um, the growers in the Yakima Valley. Mm. So, you know, that co- that coalition um, makes it a, a serious possibility that it would be passed. And then Trump, even though Trump um, is says a lot of really nasty things about immigrants, when it comes to H-2A workers and guest worker programs, he's very much in favor of them. Mm. And he's made a lot of promises to growers that he will help them. So um, I think that if the bill were to get up on his desk, I think that it's very likely that he would sign it. So I think that the chances behind this bill are not bad. You know, the past the House, which is not that unusual because you have the House is controlled by Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, the Senate, you know, you have some kind of you have people in the Senate, senators who are sort of anti-immigrant on principle against all immigrants, period, the end. And I think that they would try and block it. Um, And then you also have a handful of Democratic senators um, who object to this bill, basically for the reasons that some of these farm worker advocates have been objecting to it, too. So whether or not they would, those two things together, um, would be able to keep the bill from passing, It's, it's a hard guess right now. And plus, you know, Congress is obviously obsessed right now. Yeah, well, else. right. Not Nothing's happening at this exact moment, right? <laughs> like, right. Um, right, exactly. But it is, yeah, it is kind of a, it's this bill where it's, it seems like everyone in the middle on both sides of the aisle supports it, right? But then it's like the, there's sort of the vi- extremely anti-immigrant Republicans that oppose it for one reason, and then the farm worker advocates that are the most progressive that oppose it for a totally different reason. And so it's kind of... Well, you know, and that's also why those big comprehensive immigration reform bills under Bush and Obama failed also mm. for exactly the same reason, hmm. is that they had big expansions of guest worker programs, a lot of enforcement in them. And so you had support from the middle, and then you had anti-immigrant groups who didn't like them because they had um, legalization in them. And then you had a lot of um, kind of worker advocate groups and um, senators and Congress members who were listening to them who also opposed those bills for those same reasons. So it's kind of like we've been here before. Yeah. Um, whether or not it's going to happen with this bill, you know, Congress is, it's a different Congress and obviously a different president. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Could, well, David, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure, Lisa, anytime. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, 
tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.